Welcome to Tech Talk. Bye. CDT. Welcome to CDT's Tech Talk, where we dish on tech and internet policy while also explaining what these policies mean to our daily lives. I'm Brian Wazalowski, and it's time to talk tech. We have a special episode for you this time, one where you won't have to hear much from me. Instead, we get to hear from FCC Chairman Ajit Pai and civil rights activist DeRay McKesson. Chairman Pai and DeRay were speakers at a recent CDT event titled The Future of Speech Online. They were both tasked with thinking about the challenges and opportunities that the internet creates for speakers, and then reflect on what they hope to see in the future. I think you'll find their remarks powerful, challenging, and provocative. At one point, DeRay says, and I quote, when people talk to me about this beautiful free speech, I ask, where is it? End quote. I personally think the beautiful speech is out there, and I'm hopeful that the future internet will bring out even more of it. So now, without further ado, let's turn to Chairman Pai, and after him, DeRay. And now, please welcome FCC Chairman Ajit Pai. Thanks very much to the omniscient voice from above for the introduction. Uh, thanks as well to uh, my co-panelists, uh, very distinguished, uh, Carlos and Jennifer and Mindy and DeRay for their perspectives, illustrating, I think, uh, the richness of this conversation. Thanks as well to our hosts, uh, to the Museum Institute and the Charles Koch Institute and to the Center for Democracy and Technology. I think it's fair to say that these three groups might not always agree on everything, but uh, but I think it's significant that they've united to come together to defend and to promote uh, something, a uh, core freedom that I think a lot of Americans across the ideolog ideological spectrum embrace, which is the freedom of speech. And we fight for principles like freedom of speech because they serve as the foundation uh, for our great nation. It's obvious, of course, that Americans don't share a single cultural heritage. And I think what binds us in many ways is our commitment to a set of principles. Uh, one of the core principles, of course, is this freedom to be able to express yourself, a freedom that is unusual across the course of American history and even uh, world history. Over 200 years ago, as you know, America ratified the First Amendment to the Constitution, which states in part that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. But provisos on parchment aren't sufficient to protect this freedom. I think what we also need is a cultural commitment uh, to the importance of free speech. And these days, to be candid with you, I confess that I am worried about whether or not that commitment is starting to unravel. For one thing, just as a, an informational matter, many seem not to know that there is such a thing as freedom of speech. A survey released earlier this week by the University of Pennsylvania uh, showed that only 48% of Americans know that freedom of speech is a freedom guaranteed by the First Amendment. And 37% of Americans could not name any of the freedoms that are protected by the First Amendment. Similarly, a Pew study last year revealed that 40% of millennials believe that the government should be able to bar individuals directly from making certain offensive statements. Small wonder then that free speech seems to have an uncertain role in modern society. Fewer people today seem to be willing uh, to abide by that old dictum misattributed to Voltaire that I might disagree with what you say, but I will fight to the death for your right to say it. Uh, one has to wonder whether those who will carry the torch in future generations 
of the next generation of leadership will be as dedicated to open debate, or will simply find it easier and preferable to marginalize the views with which they might disagree. I also see worrying signs from my vantage point at the Federal Communications Commission. On Twitter, for example, seemingly on a daily basis, uh, people regularly demand that the FCC yank the licenses of MSNBC or Fox News or CNN or any number of other news outlets because they disagree with the opinions that they might have seen on one of those uh, cable news networks. Setting aside the fact that the FCC doesn't license uh, those cable channels, kind of an important technicality when one is uh, thinking about these things, uh, these demands are fundamentally at odds with America's cultural and legal traditions. Now, on the other hand, when it comes to the future of free expression, I do see some positive signs as well. And the most hopeful one, in my view at least, is the expansion of Internet access. Now, obviously, the Internet wasn't around when America was young. Back then, the most important information network was the postal system. In 1796, newspapers accounted for 70% of the weight carried by the Postal Service. Now, 40 years later, that uh, mounted increased to 96%. Princeton sociologist Paul Starr has explained that, and I quote, at, our, at the nation's founding, Americans were concerned not with building just a continental nation, but a Republican one. For my left-leaning friends of the audience, that's a lowercase r. Uh, our founding fathers made clear uh, that, uh, that uh, dictum in their treatment of the postal system. Europeans taxed publications, sometimes heavily, but the United States did not. It promoted them by offering cheap postal rates. And we also made it a priority to build out that system. We built a more extensive postal network than any other nation, and we extended it into rural areas that in other countries were simply left without. And so it was that this new nation, which was, after all, conceived in liberty, had, its, had the world's first true mass circulation press. Now, this idea of universal access to information networks starts with the earliest days of our nation, but it hardly ends there. And just look at the agency that I have the honor of leading, the FCC. We were created in 1934, and the very first section of the Communications Act, Section 1, uh, says that the FCC is charged with making available wire and radio communication service to all the people of the United States. Not some, not many, but all. And today when we talk about universal service, we have in mind, I have in mind, bringing high-speed internet access, or broadband as it is called, to any American who wants it. Now, broadband is of course important for many reasons, as you know, to get a job, to start a business, to get healthcare, to educate your kids, uh, precision agriculture, and so many other things. But it is also vital for free speech and political engagement. Speaking publicly and getting engaged politically uh, start with being informed, and it's hard to imagine doing either without internet access. Indeed, since I started this speech, uh, I've thought of checking and posting myself on Twitter about four or five times, and some of you might be doing it right now. Uh, the internet has made it much easier for the American people to learn about what the government is doing. Right now, for example, Anyone can go to the FCC's website, FCC.gov, and read the proposals that the various commissioners will be voting on at our monthly meetings at least three weeks in advance. Seems like a very mundane thing, I recognize, but it wasn't always this easy. 
not long ago, you would have had to hire a lawyer or a lobbyist, or you would have to physically travel to the FCC's building itself here in Washington to get this information. And even then, you wouldn't get this information until after the FCC had voted. And instead of having to mail a letter complete with a stamp and to, to make your voice heard in an FCC proceeding, anyone, anywhere with internet access can file a comment online. Now this level of transparency is also reflected in Congress, where elected officials connect with their constituents in ways that were inconceivable a generation before. Uh, consider, for example, the bipartisan congressional duo of Will Hurd and Beto O'Rourke. Earlier this year, as you might know, these two Texas congressmen uh, used Facebook Live to document their entire road trip from the Lone Star State back to our nation's capital. Uh, they answered questions from constituents, they discussed political matters, they texted with various people, hopefully while watching the road safely. Uh, and just being seen on that trip together online, I think, uh, built a sense of bipartisan camaraderie, which is something that I think America could use more of these days. The internet, of course, has also given uh, non-elected officials, uh, just uh, American citizens uh, wide, widely, a platform to make their voices heard like never before. I mean, look at DeRay, who I had the chance to meet uh, just a few minutes ago. In the analog age, the reach of his message was dependent on the willingness of, of distributors to carry it. Today, however, uh, he can reach thousands, if not millions, directly over a platform like Twitter. The old saying used to be that freedom of the press is guaranteed only to those who own one. But that has dramatically changed because with the internet, any American can become both speaker and publisher. And that is a powerful proposition. Any American can build an audience well beyond one's physical proximity. And any American can make news. From Periscope coverage of a terrorist attack to viral sensations like Chris Crocker, who a decade ago this week made national and international headlines with his very passionate defense of Britney Spears. <laughs> Obviously, uh, the internet has also transformed elections. I'm not sure if you are aware, uh, but President Trump's primary platform for getting the message out directly to the people was, and still is, Twitter. And the internet has also democratized uh, political fundraising. I just asked Senator Bernie Sanders, who raised $218 million online, $27 on average at a time, a remarkable figure in the history of campaign finance. Now, the evolution of smartphones with cameras has also given rise to citizen journalists. And I heard a little bit about my, this for myself when I was in Houston just last week. Uh, in the wake of Hurricane Harvey, People use social media to provide firsthand on-the-ground reports that enhance situational awareness and let people know where uh, citizens were dying for help. And they also allowed emergency responders to identify those in need of rescue. I still think about the 14-year-old girl who was rescued by the Coast Guard after telling Siri, Siri, call the Coast Guard. So obviously, uh, digital media and the explosion of online expression has created new challenges, some of which my uh, preceding uh, counterparts have talked about. But in my view, at least, I still believe in my heart that the positives outweigh the negatives. I believe that the internet has democratized our political discourse. It has an invigorated political debate. And in my view, at least, it can help sustain our shared commitment, our cultural commitment to free expression. But for too many people, I think, this is entirely an academic debate. And that's because they are on the wrong side of what I call the digital divide, the gap between those who have access to the internet and those who do not. 
the internet, of course, can be a great equalizer. It can bestow the opportunity to speak and to learn and to thrive, regardless of who you are or where you live. But if you find yourself on the wrong side of that divide, you are likely becoming less audible in national discourse and more disconnected from civ civic life. And it's here where I want to pick up the baton from DeRay, who closed, I think, with a keen insight about access being critical to having one's voice heard. The most significant digital divides are along economic and geographic lines. I mean, basically, if you're wealthy and you live in a city, you should be in good shape. But if you're low income and or live in a rural area, you are much more likely to have a problem. Just consider this, 93% of Americans earning more than $75,000 a year have home broadband service, compared to only 53% of those making less than $30,000. In urban areas, only 2% of Americans lack access to high-speed fixed service. In rural areas, 28% go without. A lot of stats and statistics, I get that, but think about what each percentage point represents. Each point represents somebody who's on the wrong side of this divide, hundreds of thousands of them, who can't fully participate in America's 21st century digital democracy. And I've met many of these folks. You've talked today about breaking out of the bubbles that we inevitably tend to inhabit in our daily lives. I've done my best to do that in my current role. And there are a few things I enjoy more than getting uh, out of the, the capital and visiting different parts of the country and learning firsthand about some of the challenges that face people in areas with poor or no high-speed connectivity. This year alone, I've logged more than 3,000 miles on road trips across the country, places like Medelia, Minnesota, and Cleveland, Ohio, Wardensville, West Virginia, and Casper, Wyoming. I'll be hitting the road again next week, visiting parts of uh, South Florida that have been devastated by Hurricane Irma, and then heading to the rural Midwest, including my hometown of Parsons, Kansas. And at every stop, regardless of who I meet, the front and center of my mind will be the FCC's central mission, closing the divide and extending what I call digital opportunity to every American. And the FCC has the tools to accomplish this mission, and I'm proud to say that we are putting those tools to work. Now, the details are admittedly weedy, conceitedly a little boring, but they're important. And so with your indulgence, I'd like to spend just a few minutes talking about them. Now, the first of these tools involves federal subsidies. At the initial FCC meeting for which I could set the agenda in February, we adopted two significant measures on a unanimous bipartisan basis, I might add, to expand broadband and access in unserved areas, to give millions more Americans a voice. And one of those was in order to bring mobile broadband to millions of Americans who don't have it today. Now, previously, the FCC was spending about $25 million a year of taxpayer money to subsidize wireless carriers in areas where there was already wireless service from a number of different competitors. But this FCC is redirecting that money and more, $4.5 billion over the next decade, to bring 4G LTE to people who simply don't have wireless access today. And we're doing it in an efficient, fiscally responsible way. Now, at the same meeting, we also voted to move forward with $2 billion in fixed broadband investment. And here, too, we set up a competitive process to make the most productive use of that money when it comes to bringing high-speed access to unserved Americans. Now, to the extent that we offer these federal subsidies, uh, we're not simply cutting in checks to companies and saying, God be with you. We also want to make sure that we have accountability. We put in place build-out requirements and reporting requirements along the way, so that if we give one of these companies taxpayer dollars, they have to tell us that they're meeting a certain deployment benchmarks within a certain period of time. Now, federal subsidies are one thing, but we also need to update our rules. 
Uh, Public-private partnerships are useful uh, to spur infrastructure investment in areas where economic incentives for private investment just aren't there. But we also want to modernize our regulations to give every single company a stronger business case to build and expand high-speed networks, because that is the primary way in which Americans are going to get connected. And that is why we have been aiming to reduce the regulatory barriers to the installation of wireline infrastructure. Our goal here is pretty simple, just to lower the cost and the speed of deployment of infrastructure on things like utility poles and to accelerate the transition from fading copper networks, uh, some of which can get wiped out by things like a hurricane, uh, to fiber networks, high capacity networks that give everybody high speed access. And this, uh, these sets of rules being modernized means that more money will be spent building the networks of tomorrow instead of propping up the networks of yesterday. As the world goes mobile, we're also aiming to promote more wireless infrastructure. Uh, the networks of the future are going to require not so much massive cell towers, but uh, hundreds of thousands of small cells, some of which you could hold in your hand. And these are going to be the tiny building blocks of what is going to be called the 5G networks of the future. Now, 5G has delivered fiber-like speeds in testing, and it could ultimately mean better access and competitive choice for consumers, and hence lower prices and better service quality. Uh, but our efforts aren't limited to just what's on land. Uh, for instance, we recently approved, again unanimously, an order paving the way for an innovative satellite company to use a planned constellation of 720 satellites in low Earth orbit uh, to deliver high-speed access to hard-to-serve areas. Think about very remote rural areas or tribal areas, places that don't have access at all. Now, other satellite companies are looking to do the same, and we'll be taking a look at those applications. Now, even with all of this, uh, smarter subsidies and reformed regulations, some Americans still could be left behind. And that is why last September, I proposed that Congress create what I called, at the time, gigabit opportunity zones. Now, the idea was pretty simple. Provide tax incentives to encourage companies to build out infrastructure in low-income urban and rural areas that otherwise would be too easy to write off and to leave behind. My proposal here was inspired by former HUD Secretary Jack Kemp. Uh, Mr. Kemp lamented decades ago about how many cynics, as he put it, miss how rapidly in an entrepreneurial economy the poor can move up the ladder of success. And I agree with that. I fear that too often in America we leave on the shelf human capital that is untapped, that is unheard, that is virtually invisible to too many people. We need to change that, not just because it's the right thing for them, but because it's the right thing for our country. And I'm thrilled that Senator Shelley Moore Capito, Republican of West Virginia, and Chris Coons, Democrat of Delaware, as well as Congressman Doug Collins, have introduced the Gigabit Opportunity Act, or GO Act, which advances my proposal. In my view, at least, this legislation would be a powerful tool for delivering to low-income Americans the online freedom of speech, a freedom that they enjoy today only in theory. Now, to bottom, the bottom line of all these, this litany is pretty simple. Bridging the digital divide is my highest priority as the chairman of the FCC. To work, to learn, to educate, to heal, but most relevant here, to speak, uh, those are incredibly important functions. And so in this mission, we simply cannot fail and we cannot falter. It certainly won't be easy, or else it would have been done already, but we'll keep going and we'll keep fighting for it. America's civic future, and I think the tradition of free expression along with it, depend on that. I'll close simply where I began with the 18th century. Our first president was quote-worthy in many respects, but one quote in particular has always caught my fancy. Uh, George Washington remarked that, and I quote, if the freedom of speech is taken away, then dumb and silent we may be led like sheep 
to the slaughter. And I think that in the 21st century, a strong platform that allows people to share their ideas and inform themselves and their communities about current affairs can forestall that fate. In a remarkably short time, when you think about it, the internet has become one such platform. The FCC's charge, our cultural traditions, and I hope your aspiration as well, uh, is to extend that online megaphone to all Americans. I look forward to working with hopefully members of this audience and Americans across the country to fulfill this digital vision in the modern age. Thanks very much for your attention. And now, please welcome civil rights activist, Doray McKesson. Hi everybody, it's good to be here. I, uh, just like Mindy, I don't know how inspirational I am uh, today because the world seems to be falling apart around us, but I do have some thoughts about the internet that I'll share. Uh, I'll start by saying that the officer Jason Stockley shot Anthony five times, that he approached his car and he said that Anthony had a gun. Uh, the prosecutor in the case said that uh, the officer planted the gun and the dash cam camera, on the dash cam, the officer is quoted as saying, I'm gonna kill this mother effer. And his lawyer described this statement as mere human emotion in the context of a dangerous moment. In the acquittal, the judge wrote, finally the court observes, based on its nearly 30 years on the bench, that an urban heroin dealer not in possession of a firearm would be an anomaly. And people often ask me, when is it okay for the police to kill somebody? That they feel like the protesters were in the street and that we have been sort of pushing and fighting against the police. And they say, well, when is it okay? And my only response to them is always, when is it okay for the police to kill your child? And it's in this context that I think about what we talk about when we talk about free speech. That when I think about standing in the middle of the street, uh, it is always because for the protesters, it was this question of how am I supposed to respond to murder? What is it supposed to be? How should I be upset by the fact that people are dead and they should be alive today? That people forget about Ferguson in the initial wave of the protest, that it was illegal to stand still in August, September, and October of 2014, that if we stood still for more than five seconds, we were immediately arrested. So if you ever saw us on the news marching, it wasn't because we thought marching was like this incredible tactic and we were trying to be in solidarity with the civil rights movement. It was because if we stood still, we'd be arrested. And we took them to court, I was a plaintiff in that case and we got it overturned, but it was illegal to stand still in 2014. So when people talk to me about this beautiful free speech, I ask, where is it? Because we didn't see it. We didn't have that amazing right to speak and do what we wanted in those early days. And I would argue in many places across the country, the protesters don't have it anymore. You think about Charlottesville is that we were arrested for standing still is that the, the white supremacists in Charlottesville literally were pushing the police. They were like pushing the police officers and nothing happened. When I talked to Terry McAuliffe, the governor of Virginia afterwards, he said, DeRay, well, they had stockpiles of weapons hidden throughout the city. And I'm like, well, that seems like even more reason to me to arrest them, right? Uh, whereas we came in the street armed with cell phones and the truth, and we were taken to jail time and time again. Now, this issue is personal to me uh, because I am uh, the reason that Chuck Johnson, the first uh, person ever to be permanently banned from Twitter, he was uh, banned for saying that he was raising money to take me out. 
Uh, I was once doing a talk back at a movie theater in Baltimore and somebody tweeted in a death threat. And in the middle of the movie, the police came. They shut down the movie theater uh, at like one o'clock in the afternoon because they were concerned about people's safety. So it is in that vein that I'll offer a few thoughts about the internet. The first is that I'm mindful that it just moves so quick. So you think about Vine. Vine was the only video platform that we had when the protest began. If we couldn't put it in six seconds, it was not getting on the internet. And now Vine doesn't even exist anymore. I remember uh, when Jack and the folks at Twitter decided to buy Periscope. We were in like the first 30 users of Periscope before Twitter even bought it. But before Periscope, it was like Ustream and Livestream were the only platforms that we were using to talk and show people what the protests were. There was no Twitter video. You couldn't upload video in those early days. Like it was literally just Vine. So when I think about what the future looks like, it's like I hope I can't imagine what 10 years looks like because I couldn't even tell you what three years look like. Like it just changed so quickly. What I will say is I'm interested to see what the first platform is that people actually learn from, like learn skills on, like a major social media platform. All right now, most of the platforms are about building community and sharing information, just like sharing knowledge, not necessarily skill building. And I don't think we have a platform yet that is allowing people to sort of build skills, like to learn skills and not just information. Now, I think about this issue of erasure, that erasure often manifests in two ways. One is that either the story is never told or is told by everybody but us. And what we saw so powerfully in the protest is that we became our own storytellers. That in those early days that the police, I remember being at one protest and the chief of police at the time, he was like, the protesters threw rocks at him. And we're sitting here like, if we threw rocks at you, we'd all be dead. Like, it would be, it wouldn't even be a conversation, right? Like, it would be really clear if we'd actually thrown rocks at you. But what was powerful is that in that moment, we could immediately say, like, that didn't happen. And we had the power to do that in a way that just didn't exist before. Now, when I think about this, there is a question of who's responsible for the consequences, that if people have the right to say whatever they want to say, then there might be consequences. Uh, and I've seen that applied disproportionately, uh, disadvantageously to people of color, that I've seen people of color like yell one thing, say one thing, and it's like they're carted off to jail. And Charlottesville, to me, is probably the most stark example of like literally these are like armed white people pushing the police, which is still wild. Every time I say it, I'm like, they pushed the police. That they actually pushed the police officers and like nothing happened. And there's questions of like, who manages the consequences and how do we have an honest conversation about them? It's something that I hope that as we go forward, like that that changes. I'm always mindful of the way that white supremacy performs innocence. And I think that like the alt-right, even the label of the alt-right is a performance of innocence that you take the KKK to the white citizens council to the alt-right is that the idea is actually the same idea that the idea hasn't changed, but what the labels do is it allows the performance of innocence in a way that allows people to say like, Oh, these are like, you know, two sides of the same coin and it's like I didn't come outside with a gun I didn't come outside saying that like other people's lives weren't worth anything I came outside saying like Mike Brown should be alive that was it that was a truth that we carried with us and that to equivocate as if we are synonymous with the white supremacists only is allowable when they become these innocent people who just have ideas and people should be able to like have ideas in this world what we know to be true is that ideas have consequences and that ideas often have consequences for the most marginalized, that the way that they impact the most marginalized just changes so much. Then there's a question of who decides what is free, who decides what freedom is and who decides where to speak. It's always interesting when I talk about the protest, people will be like, well, you know, there are some cities where like you can't yell and you're like, well, I thought I could speak freely. It's like, well, you can't scream at people. It's like, well, I thought I could speak the way I wanted to. Or like, you can't be outside of people's homes at 3 a.m. It's like, but I thought I could speak the way I wanted to. It's like, is it really free speech 
If I have to stand in that corner 10,000 feet away from like the target of the conversation I'm trying to have, shutting things down, whether you like it or not, to me seems like this free speech is possible. That like yelling over somebody, whether you agree with the tactic or not, seems to me to be in line with this idea of free speech that people talk about. And I'm interested too in the way that sometimes our best intentions change the way that tech tech platforms show up. I recently met with the Google Doodle team, uh, the people that make the Google Doodles, who are great, they're awesome. And one of the things that they uh, talked about was how when they first started, they had a couple rules. And one of the rules was that they only celebrated people on their birthday, and they, they only celebrated birthdays, and they only celebrated people at the top of their field. And one of the unintended consequences of only celebrating birthdays is that it almost excluded wholly any slave because there were all these people who like didn't have birth certificates so they didn't know their birthday so they just weren't represented in the tech platform and i bring that up because there are ways that sometimes we make our best intention decisions on tech platforms and don't realize that the repercussion means that so many people have become invisible because of those decisions now what is interesting about social media specifically in this moment is that people have now figured out how to become famous off of these platforms and you get people addicted more addicted to being famous than being free and I think that we will see this play out over the next couple of years as like how we filter who we follow, I think will become more nuanced. And I think that in a world where everybody's a content creator, as people have talked about, that content creation actually won't be what gives people power in this moment anymore. I think that the curators will be the new power brokers, that the people who filter the way that we interact in the world will be the people that we look to who will hold the most power in the digital space. Now, the last two things that I'll say is that the crowd, I believe, tends towards the center. That the more and more people that get on these platforms, like I believe that like the crowd actually tends towards the center in these moments. I think often too about what it means that people are being radicalized quietly, that uh, what social media allows you to do is it allows you to process the world privately, like you can participate in a national conversation, but just you are the only person who's there. And what does that look like when you get places like Charleston, South Carolina, where there are all these young white guys getting radicalized on Instagram and Facebook, like in the privacy of their own homes, and what are the tech platforms responsibility, responsibility in those contexts? What will it mean when hate music becomes an issue? When people make songs that are about killing and, uh, and doing bad things to races and religions, like what will Spotify and Apple and Google Music do in those cases? And I think that we're actually not too far away from that. But all of this is contingent on people having access to the Internet. And I'm reminded every day that there are so many marginalized people and communities that don't have any access to the Internet. So maybe we should start there. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Tech Talk. If you want to see the videos of Chairman Pai and DeRay McKesson, visit CDT's YouTube page. You'll also find more videos from the future of speech online there, including remarks from Twitch's Anna Prosser Robinson, Vox's Carlos Maza, and Stand Up Republic's Mindy Finn. Be sure to check them all out. Finally, a special thanks to our partners for the event, the Museum Institute and the Charles Koch Institute. I'm Brian Wazalowski. Thanks so much for listening.